With the traditional foundational wall of separation between church and state being ripped down, how does that affect trans people? What's going to happen with their rights in the court? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Perhaps the most significant trans in current-day America is the near-complete transformation of one political party from traditional electoral politics into an exclusive focus on a culture war. As we see it in the Supreme Court erasure of traditional reproductive rights, that's one, we see it in their vehement insistence on restoration of control and dominance by straight, allegedly Christian men over everyone else. The past few years are rife with examples of a fierce determination that their narrow culture must rule us all. With worldwide cultural change proceeding despite the often violent, repressive clampdowns, the American far-right Republicans of the 2020s realized that fear of the other can be a highly effective organizing tool. And to this dedicated, determined minority, transphobia maybe their most powerful lever for pumping up fear and hatred. The number of examples is, is astounding and, quite frankly, sickening. The foundational and truly vital wall of separation between church and state is starting to crumble under this fierce fire. While more guns and fewer reproductive rights dominate the headlines, our guest today, Professor Paisley Corr, writes, We're having a cultural convulsion around sex and gender. There's a very small but well-funded and politically effective political movement making an intentional, concerted effort to reinstate an older gender regime. Uh, we know what he's talking about. And transgender people uh, are, to them, a sign of all that's gone wrong with gender and American culture. Well, too bad. It's happening anyway. Kara's new book is titled Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. Thank you so much for being with us, Professor Cora. Oh, it's my pleasure, Bert. Please call me Paisley. <laughs> oh, all right, I will. <laughs> In a noted scholar and transgender advocate, Paisley Cora is explains how transgender people struggle to navigate this confusing and contradictory web of legal rules, definitions, and classifications. Paisley is professor of political science and women's and gender studies at Brooklyn College. At the, at, and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. An award-winning author, he's the founding co-editor of the journal Transgender Studies Quarterly and the co-editor of Transgender Right and Corpus, an interdisciplinary reader on bodies and knowledge. Now, a few months ago on this uh, Keeping Democracy Alive, I did a show with another author, Catherine Bond Stockton. Her recent book is gender parentheses s so it's genders with the parentheses around the s and she argues that simplistic binary genders 
which are forced on us, is oppressive cultural fortification. Your thoughts on that? I suspect you agree. Well, I definitely think, like, the state maintaining um, or kind of legislating gender and legislating a binary gender regime is oppressive. But what's ironic is that Catherine Stockton's political views are about maintaining that that regime. So, for example, she thinks that if you the sex you're assigned at birth is your sex for life. You can't change it. Men are men. Women are women. And there's just a lot of interesting overlap between what these people they're called gender critical feminists and the right wing. So they think you know the right wing thinks the birth sex determines your sex for life. They think there's no such thing as gender identity. They both support conversion therapy. Uh, for trans people, and they both think bodily autonomy is a form of false consciousness. So um, so I definitely agree that binary gender is a problematic thing, but um, I'm surprised that uh, Catherine Stockton said that. Yeah, I'm surprised that uh, she's, uh, for some of those right-wing things, that that does surprise me. But anyway, we're having... Go ahead. Just to say, she's not right-wing, but her her talking points overlap with about 50% of the right-wing talking points. They start with the same premises about gender being this natural thing, and then they they go in different policy directions, just to be fair. Well, we're talking to you today, and I'm looking forward to learning. I'm learning. And as with so many seemingly unrelated issues, common roots can be surprising. For example, from white settlement of the West to our war in Vietnam, there really is commonality. I get the sense that sex classification in the law has its roots in the subjugation of women. Please explain. Yeah, so coming at it, um, you know, feminists have long understood that um, the legal, the law was used to make sure that men got more stuff than women. And for example, talking about white people under the laws of coverture, women couldn't own property, especially if she was married or women couldn't, you know, practice law or have the same rights and responsibilities um, that men, that men can. And so when trans people come up against this problem of the government telling you what sex you are, that whole system of sex classification is in place because governments need to know who is male and who is female um, so that they can make sure that uh, women were denied the right you know, to vote or own property. And some people have suggested it goes back to Napoleon who started to kind of, you know, start to kind of create a big administrative state. And he was really interested in having a very accurate inventory of births. Uh, and he wanted to know how many boys were born in each village and how many girls were born in each village. And he wanted to know because he wanted to know when he came back there in 15 years, how many boys he would be able to, you know, yeah. grab up uh, for uh, to yeah. serve in the army. So yeah. he, so well with the state's interest, of course. Yeah, well, that's an interesting background. And uh, I don't know, it seems like we're still there in many ways. And, and you, yeah. you argue that gender designation like race should be dropped entirely from identity documents in a free and democratic society. End of quote. Well, that's a pretty tall order, is it not? Are, are there signs we're progressing in that direction? Well, it's interesting. Like, the thing we have to ask is, like, what does gender on a document do? Because um, identity documents are supposed to help you be, um, you know, pr- prov- prove your identity. And we have so many different ways of proving our identity now that, like, gender is, like, a very old-fashioned instrument. <laughs> we have, like, you know, one's own history. One's have We have all these biometric things. We have all these different ways of, you know, 
what you call that thing with your phone, you get dual factor authentication, whatever. We have all these ways of kind of proving one's identity. So gender designation is an old fashioned kind of idea. Um, but that's not to say that it's going to go away anytime soon. And I think in terms of what direction we're going in, I think in some of the more liberal states, we're going to be moving towards retreating from keeping track of people's gender, at least on their identity, you know, in maybe the medium term. But I think in more conservative areas of the country or areas of the country dominated by Republicans, there's very little chance of that happening. Yeah, that, that's for sure. They, they are, there's no question they want to make white men dominate once again. They, that is really their focus and forget other actual electoral issues. And speaking of that, during the 2020 presidential campaign, I was really taken aback by the pervasiveness of, of the fear and real hatred of people perceived as trans by the Trumpists perhaps you can help me understand and shed some light on the mystery of how, and perhaps more important, the right, the cultural right, morphed transphobia into accusations of pedophilia. I mean, pedophilia is by yeah. straight guys. What the, how, huh, what? I they- know. Well, the one thing we've learned is that lies don't have to be, make any sense. Uh, for them to be um, for them to be sticky, but it, it is really it's really interesting about like the the Republicans and the Trumpists kind of targeting trans, and one thing that it might be useful for the Republicans just kind of thinking with their hats on is like trans is. I mean, so religious people sometimes don't like transgender people. I mean, different religious texts are different about gender normativity. But it's it, but it can be a kind of a secular hatred, a sec, like transphobia doesn't you don't have to be a Christian conservative to be transphobic. So it, it might be a way for because the Trumpists, you know, I know Trump courted the Christian evangelicals, but he also right. courted you know just a lot of secular people who um, who don't like any kind of other. So yeah, I think right. um, th- yeah, so that that's one thing that happened, and then and then the kind of accusations of pedophilia that's just kind of going back to like you know anita bryant uh in the 1970s and her anti-gay stuff the idea that like gay people are are dangerous and i think with gay marriage becoming legal across the country in 2015 a lot of the right wing were like okay public opinion is really in favor of gay marriage we're gonna we're gonna ratchet our attack on gay people back uh, and uh, looking for another convenient target, and they literally polled and focus grouped and decided that trans people were convenient target. So, of course, with Clarence Thomas, it, it might be ratcheting up their attacks on gay people again because he uh, oh. with the Supreme Court as it is now. Well, of course, it used to be illegal for a black person to marry a white person, so he could be in a little bit of trouble there if they want to go back that far. But I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think they do. And I will tell you here where the show is coming from, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, there was uh, a, a theater where there was uh, a, a drag show. And these guys, literally calling themselves neo-Nazis, protested outside, claiming it was about pedophilia. I mean, that's just nuts. That's just bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> but they did. And it, as, as you said, lies don't have to have any logic to them whatsoever. I know, exactly. It's like when there was that tragic shooting in Texas a month or two ago, and um, Representative Paul Gossar, who's relatively mm-hmm. well, pretty white wing, mm-hmm. he tweeted that the shooter was a radical leftist, transsexual, illegal alien. Oh, my God. You know, like <laughs> none of that was true. But, but, um, 
that becomes true in certain corners of the inter- in certain dark corners of the internet now. And the more you deny it, the more like, oh, they're denying it. So it really must be true. Because um, you could look at gun violence, you could say, well, there's something going on with guns and perhaps ideas of solving problems and masculinity, uh, a certain kind of masculinity that thinks shooting things is a good idea. Yeah. But like, the one thing we could say is like, it has nothing to do with transsexual people. No, for sure. In, in what ways are attacks on transgender people, a key part of what you see as gender subordination. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, important um, connection we need to make between the attacks on trans people and gender subordination. And I see them as related because gender subordination basically means women should be subservient to men. And the attacks on transgender people are about keeping the division between women and men really intact. The idea that like everyone, they assign sex at birth is your sex for life. So making sure the border between men and women is just completely inviolable. And that the anti-feminist part is making sure that women, um, you know, women don't have the same rights and opportunities as men do. And it's kind of frightening the extent to which is, this is coming back. And it's not just the, it's the Dobbs decision, obviously, mm-hmm. but we also see it in public opinion. There was a pretty mainstream group conducted a poll just in April and they asked people whether or not they agreed with the statement, men should be represented and valued more in our society. And what they found was that um, younger Democratic men agree with that statement 60% of the time, and very similar to younger Republican men agree with that statement 65% of the time. So it's really something going on where, like, regardless of their party affiliation, there's this idea that, like, we need to bring gender subordination back. It, it kind of surprises Shocking. me, but... Yeah, fear. I mean, let's face it. Fear is a very, very powerful political tool when it's when it's used and making straight men afraid of feminists and feminism. I guess it's working. I mean, I think it's partly fear. And it's also partly like there's there's people have less. Like, we've, you know, like, uh, you know, people's income has been going down, yes. like the median income has been going down since about 1973. And we're getting into a real situation of like declining more um, or people are living less long. Uh, people are have less money. Yeah. And I think people look around and they, they have they have to blame somebody. Right. Like we could blame like globalization or we could blame the attacks on unions. There's lots of stuff we could blame. And people just have a name. Well, maybe there's too many women in the workforce or something. Mm. Hmm, interesting. Well, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And there are so many angles to keeping democracy alive. It amazes me. Our guest today is Professor Paisley Carl, who's got a new book out titled Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. I was interested to see that the International Olympic Committee in June announced a new framework for transgender and intersex athletes. Canadian soccer gold medalist Quinn who became the first openly transgender athlete to participate in the Olympics, called the new framework groundbreaking. He, Quinn said, far too often sport policy does not reflect lived experience of marginalized athletes, and that's especially true when it comes to transgender athletes and athletes with sex variations. This new IOC framework is groundbreaking in the way that it reflects what we know to be true, that athletes like me and my peers participate in sports without any inherent advantage, and that our, our humanity deserves to be respected. Now, that's been a little bit controversial because people have said, well, if the the strength of traditional men at birth is is greater and there's concern about 
different people competing all together. What are your thoughts about that uh, uh, Olympic uh, Committee uh, decision? Is it really, uh, is it good? Is it groundbreaking? Well, I, I think it has a lot of good potential because what they decided was that the individual sports, the associations that govern the individual sports will come up with their own particular policies on sex classification, like who could compete and who couldn't. But they did lay out these principles, uh, which I think were, which are supposed to govern those. And so inclusion is one that everyone uh, gets to, you know, should be able to participate. Um, prevention of harm, uh-huh. non-discrimination and fairness. So that's what um, Quinn was getting to in the quote, that like no one comes into it with an unfair advantage. Uh-huh. Um, and mostly though, that it would be an evidence-based approach. It wouldn't just be some, oh, I think men are stronger, so, you know, and they, even trans women are still strong. It, it can't be just what people think. It has to be based on evidence and science and studies. So I think that is a really positive, is a positive framework. And then the individual sports associations will kind of supposed to use that framework to come up with their policies. Makes a lot of sense. Science, evidence-based. Whoa, what a concept. (laughs) We have quite a collection of Supreme Court justices now. Uh, Recently, Supreme Court Justice Ketanja Brown-Jackson, yay, (laughs) by the way, refused (laughs) to answer Senator Marsha Blackburn's question about how she would define the category of woman. What politics would motivate the senator to ask that. What was the context and what is the significance of this? It must have been an interesting and surprising question for uh, Justice uh, Jackson. She handled that question really well. Her answer was, I'm not going to define what a woman is. It would depend on the context, which is exactly uh-huh. what judges do is they look at the situation, the totality of the situation, and they decide, like, what is the context? And we can talk more about that in a second. But what Marsha Senator Blackburn was trying to do was kind of throw some red meat out to the the, the right wing Republican base about the culture wars and this person is you know too much in support of transgender people. Um, so she was trying to kind of you know as that's what they do they're trying to politicize these hearings and make mm-hmm. it look like um, the Justice uh, Brown Jackson didn't have uh, the right view. But Justice Justice Jackson's. Uh, answer was perfect like it depends on the context like what's going on in the situation so i thought uh that was a good moment it is and it's a it's a good start and boy it's good to have somebody like that on the supreme court we only need a few more you point out that (laughs) and i think this is quite a quandary and and i noticed that as the uh reversal of roe versus wade uh ripples out a lot of state governments are really having a hard time figuring out what's what and what to do. And you point out that different parts of government have different rules and definitions. For example, one might have an F on her birth certificate and an M on the driver's license, be housed in a women's homeless shelter, and be sent to a men's prison. You say sex classifications are often dependent on what a government agency is trying to do. Please explain. Let me ask if you think this hodgepodge is starting to be addressed. It's kind of messy. I know. It's really crazy. And a lot of people, transgender people know this, but a lot of non-trans people aren't aware. Because you think, oh, you have a legal sex. It's like every different agency has its own rules for deciding when you've changed from M to F or M to F or X. So they have different rules, different situations. And so even in like, you know, New Hampshire, um, if you want to change your driver's license, you can just say, I'm, I'm going to be M, I'm F, or I'm X right. for non-binary. Mm-hmm. But if you want to change your 
birth certificate, you still have to go and have surgery, which is like a uh, pretty old fashioned policy. The idea that you have to have some sort of surgery to change your driver's license, but even or your birth certificate, even in the same state, they're contradictory. Um, yeah. And, and that one person could be sent to a men's prison and that same person could be sent to a women's homeless shelter. Yeah, there are different rules because again, every every agency has its own has its own uh, ability to define sex, and that they have different rules. Uh, sometimes it's just happenstance, and sometimes they have different rules because um, they're uh, worried about different things. So, in homeless shelters, are just trying to get people inside. They're trying to make them feel, please come and get sheltered. In prisons, they have this fear of uh, inmates or prisoners becoming pregnant. And so that's, their, I mean, pregnant, um, obviously that happens because of guards sometimes in, right. in these prisons and so on, but they have this, they have this fear. So that sort of governs often their sex classification policies. So it, it really depends. Back when there was a ban on same-sex marriage, trans people were like totally in this confusing muddle uh, where a trans person could change all their identity documents and then be married, you know, a trans man say with a married to a cisgender woman and an opposite sex marriage. Then the court would come along and say, no, no, that's fine that you change your driver's license. That's all fine. But for the purposes of marriage, your sex is assigned at birth and this is a same sex marriage and therefore you are not married and you have no rights to anything. So it was very contradictory. Interesting how the traditional conservatives would say, you know, keep government out of our private lives. And yet the what the Republican Party has, has morphed into is more and more government intrusion into our most private lives. It's it's remarkable to me that this is happening. But uh, it's it's a confusing situation. And, and that the whole trans uh, uh, phenomenon is, you know, it, it's it's relatively new. And there's a lot to think about and a lot to do with to, to be fair to have people have their equal rights. And when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate a long time ago, there was much partisan posturing and this big kerfuffle over what became known as the bathroom bill. My Republican colleagues rather openly played to constituents' fears. Ah, there's fear again. The truth is virtually, as you know, all child abuse is done by straight men. But the idea of trans people being able to choose appropriate bathrooms was used to whip up fear. And fear, again, it worked. The, uh, it, the, the bill was defeated. And you say the intent of the right wing is clear. These new policies are being proposed and passed in Republican-dominated legislatures, which I was in, target transgender people and are intended to harm. That's a strong accusation. Can you cite some examples? Sure. So the, I guess I start with the bathroom example um, because trans people have a going to the bathroom like, you know, we are just like everybody else. <laughs> we have to go to the bathroom. There we go. You know, we're not like the Queen of England who doesn't apparently. Um, <laughs> so uh, we go to the bathroom and we've been going to the bathroom. And so these bills are taking a situation as by and large working these anti-bathroom bills and like tr creating a problem. So like I, you know, I have, I'm, I have a beard and I'm, balding and I just look like a man. And so these bills that they're passing or they want to pass in some of these places would have me go into the women's room. And is that going to make women in the women's room feel safer? Like, I don't think it's going to make them feel safer to have me walk in there. Um, and I also think like, if you think about it, if you have some sort of standard, like you have to have your original birth certificate or, um, or, or do we have a standard where you're going to have to like, 
show your genitals to someone <laughs> before you go in the bathroom. Like it's it's really all about you know it's really all about um, creating kind of fear of the other. But like people don't go to the bathroom for a long time. In terms of uh, other bills that are happening, like they obviously they harm transgender people. Um, all these bills targeting um, transgender young people, uh, like in uh, Texas, it was a government executive order or Alabama, they passed a lawsuit. They passed a bill making it a felony to provide gender affirming care to trans youth. Mm. Those really are target trans people. So for example, in, in, um, uh, you know, in Alabama, in Alabama, a judge who was appointed by Ronald, by, sorry, appointed by Donald Trump. So the, the transgender legal advocates were not very hopeful, but he was appointed by Donald Trump and he was looking at this new law that had been passed, and he, he put a preliminary injunction out against part of the law that said, you know what, after reading all this, I realize it's actually wrong, and it goes against the parents' rights to determine what's best for their children, for the government to come in and interfere with the medical care that they've worked out with their doctor and the families. Like, that's really harming people. In Texas, they filed a, uh, the ACLU filed a lawsuit um, and a 16-year-old transgender boy tried to kill himself the same day that Governor Abbott issued this child abuse directive. Um, and he said that the Abbott's bill had kind of made him feel suicidal. And then he survived, and then we went to a psychiatric facility. The staff learned he was undergoing hormone therapy, and they had an investigator, they sick an investigator from the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services on his family saying that he was, you know, uh, they were committing child abuse. And so, like, there's a family that have figured out what is good for their child, and they are supporting their child, and then the state is coming in and investigating for child abuse and suggesting that the doctors who uh, are evaluating these kids and providing, you know, very thought-out, careful medical care are committing felonies. It's just... It's just so reprehensible how they're using this issue to whip up support and really harming kids. Yeah, they don't seem to have a hard time bringing up harm. And I, and I, I do believe that uh, there's going to be a great deal of harm coming from the uh, reversal of Roe versus Wade. And it, hopefully over time, more and more Americans will see, oh, you know, this is really bringing serious harm to a lot of people. And... Again, it, it, it's the odd switch that these people who say, you know, government out of my life, and yet they want the government to charge families, parents with child abuse if they, you know, don't follow the strict uh, laws about uh, uh, gender identification. It's just, boy, who'd have thunk it? My goodness. <laughs> I know it really is something. And I think going back to your earlier point about like what Republicans used to be like, it was Ronald Reagan's peculiar genius in bringing together the traditional conservatives, like fiscal conservatives, mm -hmm. and with a, with social conservatives, and they used anti-gay discourse and uh, an attack on abortion rights. And he brought and he brought those social issues together. So we have this kind of contradictory Republican Party that is all about the free market, but then wants a police officer literally in your bedroom, seeing what kind of sex you're having or seeing if you're you know, you know, pregnant and thinking about having an abortion. So it's just, but that contradiction, unfortunately, people, some people seem happy with that contradiction, like as long as they have freedom. But, you know, I wonder when the Supreme Court starts going after contraception, if people will start to like, uh, or more people will start to uh, pay attention other than just, you know, women. 
it's, it's always it, it's always entertaining. I'll say that for it. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, it's very uh, disturbing, of course. To uh, I mean, I consider myself a conservative because I want to conserve our traditional constitutional rights. Whoa, you know. And, and and some mm-hmm. people, oddly enough, think of me as a liberal. I can't imagine why. But now, anyway, <laughs> my, my own sense is that a large portion of the right-wing men who target drag shows and gay establishments are really fearful and in a panic about their own masculinity. I, I wonder what your thoughts are on this. And what is the power, if this is accurate, is it that they believe there is one version of masculinity the uh, stereotypical tall, tough cowboy, and if they don't fit, they worry. Are they two victims of simplistic and oppressive binary fortification? Well, that's a really good question, and I think as to whether um, uh, the panic about masculinity, like that's a question for like psychologists and psychiatrists. But I do think it's just we do have in, in our culture we do have this built up sense of masculinity and who's a real man. And I don't know if you like if you look at old movies, you know, with Cary Grant and those folks. Like those guys were like skinny. They were tall, but they were skinny fellows, right? They don't have any muscles and things. And so now now we have this kind of cult of masculinity where you have to be, uh, you know, I don't even know what the word is whipped or something. Um, and so I do think the thing that social scientists point out in gender studies is that like masculinity and femininity, they're not something you just are. They're something that you always are working to achieve. You're uh, always trying to prove your masculinity or show people that you're really feminine. And I think one thing perhaps that, that men are doing is one way to kind of achieve their masculinity or prove their masculinity is to uh, denigrate other people. Uh, so that, that could be what's going on, but it, it, it does show how the binary, this gender binary affects everybody. Yeah, it really does, and it's it's one of the challenges that we face these days. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is Professor Paisley Carl, who's got a new book titled Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. And, and you say that the debate over sex has been taking place in two different registers, the Advocates Register of Expertise, Expertise and Truth, and the bureaucrats register of governing. Please explain what you mean here. Yeah, that was like the kind of the big aha moment that really kind of helped propel the book forward. I had been working in New York City on this committee to revise or reform the birth certificate policy because New York City, which for some weird historical reason is its own jurisdiction for birth certificates. We had this very old fashioned birth certificate policy that didn't, that basically didn't let people change their sex designation on their form. Um, and so it's working with, with uh, a bunch of transgender rights advocates and some trans health advocates and the department of health. And we kept talking about like, what's the best way to understand what sex is? Mm. Is it, you know, based on your chromosomes, your sex assigned at birth? And we, we eventually convinced this committee, which included some bureaucrats of like, uh, you know, we sh- the best way to understand what sex is is through the concept of gender identity. People's internal sense of themselves as male or as female. And now we would also say, or as neither. But when the city t- took that policy that we suggested and kind of shopped it around to different agencies, mm. They, a lot of the different agencies said, no, we can't have that. That would change what we do. That would not work. We're not going to have that work. That might work in homeless shelters, but it won't work in prisons, et cetera. And then I just had this aha moment where I was like, oh, we're talking about 
what we think sex is, and they are thinking about like what sex does. So they don't think of it as like some huh. fancy, pure, abstract, philosophical definition. They just think of like, if we change the definition to be this, how will that affect how jails work? Or how will that affect how homeless shelters work? Shelters work? And so that was like one of the things that made me realize that sex is almost, a t- or sex classification is almost like a tool for governor- governing. Interesting what sex does. You're right. I hadn't, I mean, it's the title of your book, Sex Is As Sex Does. <laughs> and yeah. that, say more about, about that title, perhaps. Yeah, so that's, I, that kind of came to me uh, when I was looking at this New York City uh, policy, because one of the things, at some point, some transgender rights advocates sued the city, and the city's lawyers, uh, and this advocate sued the city and said, you know, this policy is mean, it's arbitrary, it's irrational, it's capricious, you, can't, you have different definitions of sex all over the place. And the city's lawyers responded in their legal brief and said, mm-hmm. it's totally rational to have different definitions at different agencies because those different agencies do different things. So they were looking about like, they were kind of seeing sex as like an output instead of sex as like a, a thing in itself. Oh my. That, that's fascinating. I know. Okay. So, so, so basing it on the work of the agencies as opposed to... Yeah. <laughs> So it kind of, so the most, the clearest example is like with driver's license policies. So driver's license state DMVs were always the quickest to change their policies first to let people change their sex. And then they were also the quickest to drop the the really hard obstacles for people changing their sex classification, like having genital surgery, which, you know, for most, most of the history has never been covered by insurance and most people didn't, couldn't afford to have it. So driver's licenses, it was easier to get a driver's license than your new gender identity. Uh, but then when it came to marriage, before there was same-sex marriage, all mm. these trans people who had changed their driver's licenses, they would get in a, you know, marriages end. And one way to, and some some of these marriages uh, got caught up in litigation and some right-wing groups would help the spouse. Uh, so, for example, you know, a transgender man in Florida, uh, uh, his, his spouse, who was a cisgender woman, was being represented by a right-wing group. And they said, you know what, we're going to argue that this was a same-sex marriage and therefore it was invalid. And the courts agreed. The highest court in Florida agreed uh, that you can change your driver's license all you want, but that doesn't change your sex for the purposes of marriage. And that's when I figured out, oh, so the driver's license policies, it's not like they're just like transgender people. It's actually helpful to the state for someone like me to have a driver's license that has M on it. Because when I get pulled over for a ticket, the way I look, it just would not be helpful to the police officer if there's an F on my driver's license. So it actually, having accurate identity documents helps track people and keep track of who's moving where over space. But when it comes to marriage, there's something that issue like an estate or uh, child custody, and or there's, there's something that uh, resource that trans people can get out of it, trans people are much more likely to lose. And there's a famous case in Texas where this trans woman was married to a fellow who died in the hospital. And the hospital lawyers, they were evil and brilliant. They said, you know what? We don't have to defend this malpractice suit. What we will do is we will say, since she's a trans woman, she was born a male, you can't change your sex. Therefore, she's in a same-sex marriage. Therefore, she's not really married. Therefore, she has no standing to sue. And the high, one of the, a high court in Texas agreed with that logic and brought in this decision, a surgeon can't change with a scalpel what God created at birth. So, there's all, so when trans people had something to gain, they would often lose in the court. Wow, fascinating! I know the, the, the South and the North. What can I tell you? You know, yeah, there was a war a long time ago. It's a different nation. 
anyway, but Texas, Alabama, Florida, I'm seeing sort of a pattern here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and one thing we, we, most of us, I think, still value about America is that we have a Republican form of government, smaller, a republic of the people. A Republican form of government is supposed to be quite, quite different from an authoritarian form of government. The citizens' needs are supposed to dictate in a Republican form of government. You say, like these government agencies, we should embrace the political language of needs only instead of focusing on the needs of bureaucrats or elected officials. We should ask how a particular policy will help or harm transgender people. I could expand it to say harm people, period. Is, is there a reason to think right. we have begun to make progress in that direction, that it's not about serving the government agencies, that we should really figure out serving the needs? Go ahead. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think what we've seen in the last few years, as sex classification has kind of moved out of the realm of the bureaucrats, like so for example in New York, I live in New York City, the policies are all pretty good. They've changed them slowly. Um, and they're all pretty good. And that's because it's a blue state, a very blue city, right. and it's all about seeing transgender people as part of the as part of the public and meeting the needs of, of transgender people. Um, but by the same token, in states that are dominated by Republicans, they see there's this new attack on transgender people and if some states are even trying to go back and, ch and change their birth certificate policies so you can't even ever change them. And they, they're using transgender people in a sort of, uh, in, in a way to kind of whip up, uh, whip up anti-trans sentiment and get people, uh, get people upset. But one of the things that a Republican form of government is that it's supposed to be the will of the people yeah. over, you know, eventually, you know, filtered through our representatives. But what social scientists have found, political scientists have found, is that there's this thing called a democratic deficit, which is even say say 80% of the people or 75% of the people support transgender some transgender positive policy. In some states, you'd have to the the, the, the legislature won't do anything until that that number is up to 85 or 90%, and that's because there's a gap between what the public wants and the way uh, legislatures are voted in with gerrymandering with first past the post systems. So the, the will of the people is not really re reflected often in the, um, in the system. <laughs> and you, you're a former legislator, so you know all about that sort of thing. Oh sure. my goodness. Yes. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, former. I'm, I'm a recovering politician. What can I tell you? <laughs> recovering. Very good. <laughs> Oy. Um, but you, here we are with the Biden administration, and you note that the Biden administration is now reversing Trump's reversals. Again, the Biden administration is reversing Trump's reversals. What? Tell us about that, please. What's that all about? Right. It's, it's like transgender stuff has become a political football. So on one sense, we have the blue states and red states going different directions. At the federal level, it changes over time. It goes from one administration to another. So the Obama administration could accomplish very little through Congress. But the Obama administration did a lot on the level of policy and administrative changes for LGBT people. Wherever they could change a rule, they tried to change a rule and did so. Um, and then when Trump came in, so none of this is going to the legislature because it's sort of just gridlocked. When Trump comes in, we all thought he wouldn't be that good at governing, but he had uh, – he had good he had good support from right wing groups who understood how government works and Trump comes in and he starts to reverse all these policies. So Obama has 
under, during the Obama administration, the military was going to have transgender people serve. The military had been concerned this for a long time, and it finally come around to it. And then Trump just tweeted out, uh, tweeted out, no, we're not going to do that. And the, uh, the military, as probably you know better than I, it's like an ocean liner. Like, it doesn't turn quickly. Like, they've been thinking <laughs> about this transgender policy for 15 years. They finally got it figured out. They thought it could work. And they were they had turned the boat around, the ship around. And then Trump comes along and says, nope, we're going to kick those people out. So And now the Biden administration comes along and, and reversed that. So it's really a very unstable, unfair kind of football. They're doing that with um, – Title IX, there's a definition of sex in, in education, they do the, in the healthcare discrimination uh-huh. and in uh, the military, and all these ways that where states, where the, where the federal government can make changes through rules and not through uh, Congress. Wow, that can be really powerful. I hadn't even thought about changes to Title IX, but you're right. That's done some amazingly good things, but they can be changed through rule changes, etc. Exactly. The Biden administration just proposed new rules, which would go back on what Betsy DeVos had proposed and they're under public comment now. Uh, So we'll see what happens with that. But I suspect they'll go through. I'm not sure which rules you're talking about, but if Betsy Voss was Uh, for it, I'm sure I'm against it. (laughs) Well, basically, uh, Betsy Voss, the the Trump administration's idea was that sex and any part of the federal government should be interpreted to mean your biological sex at birth. Uh And the Obama administration and now the Biden administration are saying like sex and sex discrimination includes gender identity. So it means that transgender people will be protected from discrimination in healthcare or in education, places like that. Sounds good to me. Uh, (laughs) let, Let me ask you, if you were to address a crowd of average Americans and said, there's no reason to maintain sex classifications. What, what kind of reactions would you expect? Yeah, well, I guess one thing I would say would be, you know, we don't, like, what do we use sex classifications for? We use it right now still for selective service. So that's one place it's still used. And the main place where it was used is the, and the ban on same-sex marriage. That's gone. But I guess what I would say, especially if I was speaking to people in New Hampshire, I would say people know what gender they are and they don't need the government to tell them. Yep. Like, you know what I mean? Like you have a gender, you know, but you shouldn't have to go to the government and say, here's all my doctor's letters and here's my birth certificate. And this is okay. Right. Like, you know, your gender, like you don't need to have it on a document and, and stamped with approval by the government. <laughs> you would think that's pretty traditional conservatism, but <laughs> I don't know. things it's, it's an upside down world these days. It is. It is. You, you say this problem has to be solved politically and democratically. My sense is that while the Republicans are gleefully manipulating fear of the unknown, the other transgender people are to them a sign of all that's gone wrong with gender. They, they, people like uh, Josh Hawley, who I think is, I mean, what most people I think would think of as toxic masculinity. He's all for it, rah, rah. But the right wing is hoisting the flag of white, straight, dominant men. Nostalgia for some imagined simpler times, the good old days when men were men. Meanwhile, the Democrats, and this concerns me, I mean, the Republicans have really transformed this upcoming election into a, a, a culture war. So what the heck are the Democrats doing? Democrats seem terribly frightened of embracing this cultural change. They won't touch the, the culture war at all. What would you advise to nervous 
Democratic Nellies running for office on the whole culture war thing. They are just, you know, I mean, they're running scared. Yeah, I think it's just really important to speak to people where they where they are, um, and just you know, because like one of the things that comes up a lot is like, oh, people hear about pronouns and like they want to vote for someone who thinks pronouns, but like if you just talk to people plainly and and, and clearly and say, you know, I, I mean, many people by now know a transgender person. Like yeah. it's just, and we're all like social beings, and it's just a weird thing to use the wrong pronoun repeatedly to to. Uh, to refer to someone. So I think we just have to kind of, we have to talk to people where they are. There was a good article in New York magazine or the New York public by this guy named Sam Averbell who talks about um, woke discourse. And the problem with the woke discourse or the anti-woke, whatever you want to call it, is that sometimes the people like on my side, the progressive side, sometimes the language used is just too highfalutin and fancy Mm -hmm, and just mm -hmm. doesn't, doesn't meet people where they actually are because mm-hmm. the thing about the thing about people is is people are good, you know. And the Republicans play on um, people's fears and alienation. And I think one of the things that happens is like we're sitting at home, people are underemployed, we have less money, and then they get these messages from the internet about like the evil transgender people. And we spend less time in face-to-face contexts where like, where we just might meet people arbitrarily, like, you know, the bowling league or whatever. But when people, you know, when people do come into contact with people who are different, you know, people are generally more good than bad. And I think that's what we just have to kind of put our, put our faith in instead of kind of being in this abstract kind of culture war battle uh, over this fancy language. We have to move away from that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that was one of the problems with the 2016 election and why Trump got elected is because he talked in simple terms. I mean, he's not a very bright man, I don't think. And he talked in terms that people could relate to. The Democratic Party came across as elitist. You got to go where people are. And I th- Yeah, exactly. And he, I, I, you know, I obviously am not a fan of Trump, but I do admire his, his rhetoric. Like, I mean, some like fake news, all that stuff is whatever but he just used simple language yes. and it told a story to people it told a story that the chinese are stealing their jobs it wasn't necessarily true or the no. way he was telling it but it made sense to them and we just had to be able to kind of speak at that same level of like this is what this is what's happening and i think like the transgender people has this new red flag it's like yes we have we don't have an economy now that can support a single earner household most people can't be like just a single bed earner um we don't, we're not we're not that place anymore. And what can we do to make it more possible for people to stay at home with their kids? What kind of policies would we need to not um, to, to to not um, have so much kind of alienation and so much people getting sick and not getting health care? Because it's not the fault of transgender people. It's right. like, but that's what we need to come back to. Oh, you got to have somebody to blame for high gas prices or whatever. Right, <laughs> right. It's the trans people's fault. <laughs> If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're speaking about uh, very real effects of, of democracy and a powerful, imposing state. Our guest today is uh, Professor Paisley Carr. He's got a new book out, Sex Is As Sex Does. Important title. Sex Is As Sex Does Governing Transgender Identity. Uh, professor Carr is a professor of political science and women's and gender studies at Brooklyn College and at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Uh, he's written a whole bunch of things, uh, very interesting stuff, and it, it matters a lot as, as we try to move forward. And 
care about one another and and have you know a a, a republic that our founders intended for us and one of the uh, difficulties that people always have always have had is the teenage years being a teenager is always a tough time sexual identity doubts often do great harm to young people who are uncomfortable with who and what they're expected to be they they don't know this new acceptance of non-binary identification seems to be quite trendy but aside from that could it be that this breaking free of oppressive cookie cutter sexual identity may be a sign of health as difficult as it may be yeah, I think that's a really good observation. And one of the things that people are noticing is like a lot, a lot of kids, young kids and teenagers are identifying as non-binary. Oh, yeah. And that's like a, a very new development. Like there's just a lot of people identifying as non-binary. And some of those, some of those kids, probably a pretty small proportion of those kids might turn out to be transgender or transition or what we call binary transgender. Um, but a lot of those kids are just taking the opportunity to think about what gender means to them. And so for some people, it's like a rejection of gender norms that just, that just don't, um, they don't, they don't like, or don't make sex to them. So it don't make sense to them. So a lot of kids, and I see this a lot with, um, with young people who, you know, assigned female at birth and they're, they're basically girls. And then they, they adopt, they pronounce and not binary thing. And like, and actually, I have a kid who has gone through that as a as a as an exercise and is interested in doing that. And I think it's part is like it's not great to be a girl, you know. So saying "call me they" is like a way to say like I'm not ready to be sexually harassed at the bus stop yet. I mean, I don't know if it would stop that, but it is kind of a way to like you know I'm gonna figure out where I am in the gender spectrum, and I'm gonna figure out like how it's okay for you to address me and look at me. Uh, and it's a way of kind of maybe taking some power, I think, yeah. which is uh, which is good. That is good. That is good. And I have a uh, niece who started out as Eliza. Now the name is Eli. And I think that's, mm -hmm. that's an interesting point to think about, you know, getting out of the, the cultural norms and the, and the uh, oppression there. Who knows what will happen in the future? But I think challenging that, that's a real sign of health. I hadn't thought about that before. Thank you very much. You say... The legal significance of sex has diminished enormously in the law. There are very few areas where sex differences still matter. Of course, sexual classifications are still baked into the law, but they don't serve much purpose, end of your quote. Now, this raises a number of questions. Racist practices have long been illegal, but it's not like racism has gone away. Systemic racism yeah. certainly remains. I mean, it's really there. You say that, so, you know, we, we've, we've banned racism, but yeah, it's still there. You say the legal significance of sex has diminished enormously in the law. But again, aside from the law, is there evidence of real cultural change occurring, perhaps through the simple... Uh, healing tincture of time is time starting is it moving slowly i mean the the arc of of history moves towards justice very slowly but do, do you see it happening through time well you know i think a month ago i would have said yes the arc of justice moves slowly but it moves and i now with this recent supreme court <laughs> series of decisions i feel like we're getting 
bombed back into the dark ages. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. but anyways, but they're an anti-democratic institution. Yeah. But if we're just talking about people, I think we are. I think we are moving forward. I guess I think that's a really important kind of comparison. Like there's no more race discrimination and we're moving away from discrimination based on sex for sure. And, you know, even the Supreme Court a couple of years ago said you can't fire transgender person just for being transgender because that's sex discrimination. But what we've seen with with feminism and anti-racist movements and LGBT movements is actually getting rid of like formal that's what academics call it. <laughs> should use plain language, I suggest. Getting rid of like legal discrimination is just a small part of the battle. Uh-huh. Yeah. For, the, for example, for transgender people, the three things that would help the most transgender people the most would be passing a national public, you know, uh, health care plan. It would be, you know, doing a lot to get rid of the vast income inequality we have. And it would be, you know, really reforming our carceral system and, and imprisoning many, many less people. Those three policies would help the most trans people the most, and they'd probably help the most everybody people the most. But I think in our, in our system, sometimes we get caught up focusing on like, oh, I want to be included in that non-discrimination law. And of course, every group should be included in the non-discrimination law. And then we think that will be the solution. But that's just we still have like capitalism run amok and union membership declining and, you know, CEOs making 450 times what the workers make. Yeah, it, it is uh, still there for sure. But, uh, uh, and, and it's interesting how the basic roots, I mean, I was talking with some problem, I can't remember which, and it came back to the fact that we don't have fair housing right now. And that mm-hmm. can solve a lot of issues. We don't have a fair healthcare system. You know that applies equally. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, like we don't have fair housing, and but we also are in this kind of like I don't know what you call it permit architecture where it's just really hard to build houses where people need to live. Like in New York, where every time there's an empty lot, there's like a huge, tall, very thin building going up. Many stories. I don't know who would want to live in those tall, thin buildings with you, but they're very expensive. But we need to build housing for regular people, and we have. You know, we have NIMBYism, we have all these yeah. these things that mitigate against, you know, urban density. So those kind of policy changes, are they're not sexy. They're sort of boring and wonkish, mm-hmm. uh, but they're so important. And they affect what we're talking about. They really do as it, as it goes on. Yes, they really do. So fairness uh, and not having to, you know, one slice of bread that we all have to fight for. You know, if there's enough to go around, that makes a big difference. Are there... Exactly. Are there organizations that, that you can suggest that may be helpful if people want to, you know, get involved and, and, and try to bring about some more fairness in, in this uh, issue? Sure. Well, you know, there's uh, one of the, the, the leading um, the leading organizations in the country is actually a Northeast organization. It's called uh, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, and they basically do oh, yeah. New England. Mm-hmm. And they have been doing such good work for a long time. Um, they've been doing transgender work way before it was trendy, trendy and way mm-hmm. before other gay legal groups took it on. And there's a lawyer there named Jennifer Levi who's been at the forefront of some of the biggest transgender cases in the last 20 years. So that would be a good organization to check out. And then um, for people who are interested in re- researching the issues, there's a really good group called the Movement Advancement Project. And it's a great, great acronym, it's MAP. And they put a map of all the states and every issue and how all the states do on every issue to, to do with LGBT stuff. And that is a really great resource. 
Uh, interesting. Well, glad. I remember they've been around a long time, and uh, this show yeah, plays. Yeah, they're a great group. Oh, they are, and they, this show plays out a lot in the the West Coast. Uh, so uh, we can um, push for it to happen, and increased oh, yeah. increasing awareness is a good thing. It really is. Yeah, and on the West Coast, there's the National Center for Lesbian Rights. I mean, it's a national organization, but they're in San Francisco, and they have this lawyer Shannon Minter, and also a great transgender rights advocate. So there's lots of good work being done. Ah, uh, we will get there. It's hard to be optimistic sometimes, I'll tell you, but yeah. uh, we can do it. Uh, Professor Paisley Curra, thank you so much. The book is titled Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. Fascinating area, and uh, there's always work to do. Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thanks for the work you do. Thanks, Bert. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yo, I don't think we should talk about this. Come on, why not? People might misunderstand what we're trying to say, you know? But that's a part of life. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things. Let's talk about things that make me. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Oh, let's talk about sex for now. To the people at home or in the crowd. It keeps coming up anyhow. Don't decoy, avoid, or make void the topic. Because that ain't going to stop it. Now, just talk about sex on the radio. Yo, and video show. Many will know anything goes. Let's tell it like it is and how it could be. How it was and of course how it should be. Those who think it's dirty have a choice. Pick up the needle, press forward, or turn the radio off. Will that stop us, Ken? I doubt it. Alright then, come on, spin. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. To try to make any man's eyes pop She use what she got to get whatever she don't got Fellas droop like fools But then again, they're only human This shit was a hit because her body was booming Gold, pearls, rubies, crazy diamonds Nothing she wore was ever common Her days, heads of state, men of taste Lawyers, doctors, no one was too great for her To get with or even mess with The press, she says, was next on her list And uh, believe me you, it's as good as true There ain't a man alive that she couldn't get next to Ooh, she had it all in the bag so she should have been glad But she was mad and sad and feeling bad Thinking about the things that she never had No love, just sex Followed next with the check and the note That last night was dope, 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 dope. Oh, hey Ooh, ooh, ooh Take it easy, y'all uh. Alright Let's talk about sex, baby Sing it Let's talk about you and Let's talk about all the good things I know about things that may be. Let's talk about sex. Come on. Let's talk about sex. Do it. Let's talk about sex. Uh-huh. Let's talk about sex.